Welcome to the I-29 Moo U Dairy Podcast. I-29 Moo University is a consortium of land-grant universities in Minnesota, Iowa, South Dakota, and Nebraska. This podcast covers timely news, information, and research for today's dairy industry. On today's I-29 Moo U Dairy Podcast, we have guests John and Joan Maxwell from Cinnamon Ridge Dairy and Brian Doherty joining us from Iowa State University. Well, I'd like to welcome you to Cinnamon Ridge Dairy Farm. We're located in eastern Iowa, just outside the Quad Cities. For those of you unfamiliar with the term Quad Cities, that would be Davenport, Bettendorf, Rock Island, and Moline. And we're claimed to fame as Moline is the world headquarters for John Deere equipment. So one of the things that we do at our farm besides milking cows is that we're big into agritourism. We greet people from all over the world. Many of them come because of John Deere World Headquarters and John Deere World Headquarters came to us in 1997 after winning the Outstanding Farmer Award and asked if we'd be willing to do tours. And that's how we got started in in the tours. So from 1997 to today, we have grown from just foreign tours to what we call domestic tours. That would be like the river boats that come up the Mississippi, the local church groups that put together, as well as road scholars from MIT out on the East Coast. Many of those are put through Iowa State University and also children's tours. However, with the pandemic, that has pretty much gone to zero. But with those tours, we like to talk about our history along with how agriculture has changed. So we're an education type tour, not an agritainment tour. So we've been farming in eastern Iowa for over 150 years through the Maxwell family. However, in and, and milking cows the entire time. However, in 2012, we went from a tie stall barn to a robotic dairy operation. This was also big into data, big into people curious, which also expanded our tour operation. And along with all that data, we've been been making many different changes to the nutrition of the cows. And some of the benefits to that is it was a very sustainable practice. And we started doing cover crops way back in the 1980s. And I'll let John talk more about that. I started doing cover crops back in the early 1980s before it was a thing, before it was uh, water, uh, water quality, before any of that. And uh, I needed it because I, I was uh, short on feed and I um, actually planted it thinking that we could try it. And of course, I tried it on just a, a few acres and it turned out to be really a good deal. And uh, since uh, I believe it was 1983 when I, I first planted cover crops, I've planted cover crops ever ever since. It has changed a lot through the years. Uh, that was uh, rye as a cover crop, and I've gone down the wheat trail, the the triticale trail, the uh, a lot of the different uh, vetches, etc. And I actually uh, end up doing almost a full circle and doing the rye again. And now I I put rye in with clovers, uh, mostly crimson clover, to add a little protein to that ration. And uh, that, is, that has turned out well. And, and right now we uh, do about 250 acres of, of rye and that happens to be almost the na- same number of acres of corn silage. And I was talking to my nutritionist uh, who is basically the state of Iowa, Northern Missouri, uh, Western Illinois, covers a big territory territory for big gain and has multiple dairies 
in his arsenal. And he said that it is growing and growing the number of dairies that use rye in their dairy ration as well as their heifer and dry cow ration uh, uh, also. It actually is ideal for a dry cow ration because the dry cow ration needs to be similar to of a low or no energy diet and rye provides that in it and it works best feeding it as a silage, whether that be in a bunker or a bag or something like that. And so we, we end up putting it in a bag and we feed it to almost everybody. It goes in and out of the lactating cow ration, depending on uh, the fiber and everything else in that uh, ration. I also put up uh, many, 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 as in hundreds of bales of straw uh, from this and use that in a variety of ways. One is I feed with it. Number two, I use it uh, for straw in the calf barn. Used to use corn stalks and they're just so dusty that straw works better. I've even sold some straw to the, uh, the county for um, when they reseed uh, road ditches, they need straw. And so that's worked out really well. The thing I like about it is the rotation that it gives me on my land. I can, um, I can plant the corn and uh, then harvest the corn for corn silage. I plant the rye that fall and I found that the earlier within reason, meaning middle September, you plant that rye, the better it winters through and the better that it comes out uh, for uh, tonnage uh, the next spring. So I plant the rye, I usually haul a little manure on it um, and then plant the rye. And then the rye is, is grown and green all winter long. And then along about the very last part of April or the early part of May, I take that rye off. And then I no-till soybeans into that stubble. And that way I'm basically uh, doing the things as far as soil conservation, uh, water quality. And also it helps me in that uh, it gets the rye off so I don't have to put up with all of the residue from the rye. Uh, I'm, I put it up to use it for feed. So uh, that works out uh, really well in, in my ration. I also uh, plant a, a fair number of acres of rye. I've done a variety of seeding techniques. Uh, I've planted with a drill and I'm going to tell you that if you plan on harvesting it, you need to put it in with a drill because you get the best seed to soil contact. I have flown it in in August and I would tell you flying it in in a, a corn crop uh, is wonderful. Flying it into a soybean crop uh, and you plan on harvesting soybeans, uh, that could get real tricky. In fact, one year I had the rye taller than my soybeans. And that uh, got a little bit ugly because of the wetness of the fall and the warmth of the fall. The rye loved that, the soybeans got dry. Well, sort of. And so it, I had 80 acres of, of challenge. So I always say some of the, my best lessons come from failures or challenges. And I learned that uh, we're not doing that uh, again. Uh, I will take the soybeans off and if I'm gonna plant rye into it, it, we're going to do it after the soybeans are off. One of the challenges for planting a cover crop into soybean stubble is actually not in the fall. You, rye will, as long as you get it germinated, it will grow and, and it'll be fine next spring. But the next spring is a real challenge because herbicides do not work until it's 50 degrees. And usually about that time, you're wanting to plant corn. And so there, there's a real challenge of 
you know, the timing and you, you need to spray it. Do you plant before you plant and then it gets wet and you can't, and you can't spray and you've got corn sprouting and you're trying to kill the rye or you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait and you, you don't get the rye uh, sprayed right away because of moisture or a variety of reasons, too cool, whatever. And now all of a sudden you've got rye that's knee high that you're trying to kill and no till in, which makes a real challenge as well. So that, that part is yet to be figured out in my uh, experiences. Uh, it can be done and on certain years, it works out like a charm, but there are other years that it doesn't so much. And usually the techniques that I'm going for, uh, they work year in and year out. And they are part of the whole uh, process of working and you don't have to uh, worry about, well, we had a late fall, we had an early spring uh, or a late spring or however that goes, you, you don't have to worry about it. So, and as time has gone along back in 1983, when I did rye, sustainability was uh, not a word you usually use in agriculture. And, and today it's used almost every day. And it is something in the back of my mind as well as most other farmers' minds. And so, and I think in order for us to really uh, go down the sustainability path. Cover crops need to be in that equation one way or another, whether you have livestock or not. And I think that that needs to be uh, uh, thought through with all of that. What part of sustainability and cover crops makes you feel that way? Is it the soil health side, the continuous forage production side? Is it the animal health and nutrition? What part of sustainability and cover crops for you really resonated? I, I think all of it, I think I go back to my original reason of having cover crops is it allows you to have more cows, more milk or whatever on less acres, which uh, certainly is, is uh, good for uh, your, your profitability. And it also is good for the planet. And that being a, a U.S. sustainability winner, that is uh, some of the mantras that are in it. Is it good for the planet? Is it good for the people? and is it profitable? So, and it, it kind of fits into all three of those categories. And I, I feel like that if you're a dairyman and you aren't trying rye and you aren't doing that, uh, you should think about uh, the opportunity of doing that because that, that really does open a lot of doors for you. I will grant you the spring suddenly became a lot busier because you're taking off rye and you're trying to plant and you easily can take off the rye and plant corn into it and have that cycle. My cycle happens to be plant corn, take off corn, plant rye, take off rye, plant soybeans, take off soybeans. And then I know till the soybean or the corn in the, that soybean stubble. But it doesn't have to be that. It certainly can be the rotation, plant corn, take off corn for corn silage, plant whole manure, plant rye, take off the rye in uh, late April, and then plant uh, corn or haul manure and then plant corn again and just keep that cycle going on. And uh, that, that works as well. I just would um, add to that. I, I know we have Brian Doherty, our ISU extension egg engineer here on the call as well. And, you know, just talking about some of that soil health and the benefits it brings back to the, the dairy and the whole you know, the farming operation, but 
John brought up some good points of there's many different options. So Brian, have you worked with producers on different kinds of options or what challenges challenges have you seen with farmers incorporating the cover crops? Generally, there's kind of two different approaches on dairy farms when it comes to, you know, working cover crops into the rotation. And the first is the one that John mentioned, which is, you know, you take off your, your cash crop in the fall, you know, after corn silage would be the most common. And then you follow that up with a winter hardy cover crop. So that could be cereal rye or triticale or winter wheat or something like that. And then you harvest that for silage or baleage in the spring. And so, you know, that's one approach and kind of a newer approach that some people are starting to play around with is actually putting some summer annual cover crops back into the rotation. So that could be a single species, it could be a mixed species or cocktail mix, some people refer that to. And so in that approach, you're actually seeding that in the spring. So you would say, take off your cereal rye in the spring. And then instead of going back to corn or soybeans, you would then put in this summer annual or cocktail mix. And then that could be harvested anywhere from one to three times during the summer, depending on what your goals are. If you're wanting high quality feed for your dairy cows, you'd probably cut it two or three times. Or if you're just looking for more tonnage and some heifer or dry cow feed, you'd maybe just do one cutting. And so kind of the point there, the goal with that system is just to try to increase the overall tonnage that you're producing. Because when you have perennials like alfalfa or clover in the rotation, Sometimes uh, people have trouble with those winter killing, and then your second and third year, your your yield goes down on your perennials. And so a few farmers have tried this system, and they're finding quite a bit higher overall biomass production with that summer annual in the rotation. This podcast is sponsored by DTE Biomass Energy. DTE Biomass is the leading developer of renewable natural gas facilities on dairies and landfills and is a subsidiary of DTE Energy, a Fortune 500 diversified energy company based in Michigan. DTE Biomass owns and operates 11 RNG facilities, mostly in the upper Midwest. If you're interested in learning more about dairy RNG, you can follow the link on our I-29 Moo University webpage or visit DTEBE.com. I just wanted to comment on his second second one. I agree with, with doing that. Uh, in my uh, case, I need, I need to produce energy. Somehow uh, I need to have some carbohydrates and that's where corn uh, and corn silage produces the best of that. So that, that's how I get in, into the corn silage. But if you're after forages and, and your energy is met in another way in the ration, then uh, Brian's point is, is well, well taken. Have either one of you run into any challenges doing or, or seen any challenges with producers that do a continuous rotation of their crops from like a, a corn to a cover crop? to a corn or soybean in continuous set cycle year round? Has the weather impacted or has soil health been impacted negatively having a continuous crop in the ground? The weather is the biggest challenge. Even though you think you've got a great rotation, for instance, two years ago, if you remember right, we had a really late spring, um, actually uh, two springs ago, and that was a huge challenge. I had rye that was shoulder high on me and I'm a tall guy. And I would have loved to be harvesting it because I was running low on feed. And I spent about uh, two weeks 
of mowing it. I, I would get a day of sunshine and then I would get a get two days of rain and find an area that is somewhat dry, not in a valley and, and mow it and then bale it uh, because I have the ability to bale wet, uh, wet silage, bale it, uh, chop it up and feed it right out of the field. And I had to do that for about a week. And I realized that, holy smokes, this is, this is really getting to be a really wet year. And I, I was doing this in the middle of May. So um, it, it really, weather can be a challenge uh, with it all. But that's not to say that weather isn't a challenge in the conventional system. When you mow down 100 acres of alfalfa and you get it rained on, that also makes it a huge challenge to try to uh, get those nutrients up when, when the rain is, is uh, uh, taking that away from you. And I would just add to that, one of the big challenges I see with that type of system is compaction. So if you think about it, you take corn silage off, you know, you've got a lot of passes across the field with heavy equipment. You follow that up with your cereal rye or other winter hardy, and then you're, you're harvesting that again in the spring, probably chopping that for silage. So you've got another pass there, also possibly two passes with manure application, both spring and fall. So it's just a lot of wheel traffic on the field, you know, depending on how that system's managed. So that's just something to producers to keep an eye on, you know, make sure they're not overly compacting their soils. And I would generally, if producers have enough acreage, I would recommend maybe rotating out of that and not just doing a continual cycle of corn silage and rye and, and harvesting that twice a year for silage because compaction can get to be a real concern in some cases with that type of system. I think you both brought up some good points about weather and then also manure application because that gets to be kind of a challenge too is getting that manure applied before you get the corn planted and how do you balance, you know, getting the rye off. So I know some producers just go ahead and burn off that rye. I mean, is that an option too? If you don't necessarily need it for feed, um, are they just burning that off too? As far as I know, yes, that's true. Um, they'll burn it off. Now, uh, it works a little better if you plant soybeans into that rye. The, the soybeans seem to be a little hardier, uh, be able to get going. In fact, uh, there's, there's some uh, um, organic people that um, I, I'm very familiar with and happen uh, real close to here that will uh, actually uh, plant the soybeans late enough that the rye is maturing enough that it's it's starting to, to die and they will um, no-till right into it. In fact, it, I've had it already where they go over it with a roller and they roll it down and then they plant it and, and uh, they seem to get along okay with it. And then eventually the rye I think does, does uh, sprout again and, and harvest it. I'm not recommending that, but I, I do know that uh, the burnoff is pretty popular if you don't have livestock. And I actually agree with it. The, the hard part that the, the farmers keep talking about is if I don't have livestock and I plant the rye and I don't get anything from anybody about paying for that, where is it in my economic process? And when corn and soybeans were, were low for the last you know, several years, I think there's a lot of people going away from it because they couldn't afford to buy the seed and plant it and then buy the, buy the herbicide and spray it off when they could avoid that by just leaving the, the land be uh, left, left open. So that's, that, that is a challenge. And I think that's gonna be a challenge ahead of us to try to figure out, hey, how can we, without money coming out of whoever's pocket, the taxpayer or the whatever, 
how do we make that so it's an incentive for them to do that um, because uh, good feelings don't always pay the bills. And just because you feel good about what you're doing for the, for the soil and what you're doing for sustainability and what you're doing for your own land, if, if you're uh, really short on money and you're not gonna own the farm next year if you don't start saving money, it gets to be a real challenge ahead of you. But the part about getting it for feed makes total sense for a dairyman to do that. What have you found is the best way to put up your cover crops for feed? I know you mentioned as a silage in bags. Are there any other techniques that you have found that work for storage and in harvesting? For feedability, a silage is better because it's more palatable. Now, when we feed straw, we add water to it. It's kind of like, you know, uh, dehydrating your food and then rehydrating it, you know, when you pack your, uh, to go camping or something like that. So your backpack isn't so heavy and it's the same thing, but just like the food that you eat, that's rehydrated, it's not quite the same, uh, where, uh, putting it up as silage is, uh, by far, uh, a better way to feed it and to chop it is better because of, uh, the uh, palatability for the animal to eat it. If you got long stems, it, it, it really makes it challenging for them. So I have done, um, I guess, three different ways. Actually, I've done four different ways. Um, I've chopped it and put it into three different storage areas. One is a silo, and I put rye into a silo, and, and I did it once. And because it comes out so hard, it's packed like concrete, it comes out so hard, I uh, realize I will never do that again. Uh, even the best unloader with the best knives still gave me fits. And I, I, I think I, I spent a solid eight months climbing the silo every single day. And that, that really uh, has a way of getting you to think, uh, think right. The, the next uh, point I put it in was in a bunker. And a bunker is a great way to store it. I would tell you that if you're going to feed it to a dairy, the bunker may not be your favorite uh, part because there is some pieces that spoil that get into the feed. And for me as a dairyman, I want every mouthful to be the best for the dairy uh, piece. And the last silage point is to put it up as a bag. And that's what I prefer. I put it in a 12 foot bag, which I have a pretty big face, but I'm able to keep the face uh, cleared off. So that piece is is uh, a part of the whole thing of being successful for me. You have a little problem with mud. I actually have a big pad of asphalt that I put a lot on um, as well. Another piece, I put it up as baleage. And I'll tell you that makes a lot of baleage bales because you're putting it up wet. You've got a wind, wind row that's probably two and a half foot tall. And I put it up uh, a couple years ago as baleage and had over a thousand bales. And the challenge there is if you put it up as baleage, there are knives in the baler and that the, the person operating the baler struggles with those knives. So they really aren't, whoever is running your baler for baleage is uh, not going to, you're not going to be your, your favorite person uh, after that. So, um, and also the feedability, putting it in a mixer, putting it in, uh, that is not the best either. That was a one-time experiment as well. Um, and then putting it up as straw actually works out uh, well for us 
because I can, I can do it as straw. I, it, you say, well, how do you get that stuff dry? And, and the answer is I mow it and then I tet it every single day, unless it's raining, of course. Or, and and uh, my daughter is one of those pe- people that runs the tetter. And, and uh, she said that uh, she ran the tetter for 10 straight days before it finally gets dry, but you'll get it dry. And then you bale it and you put it up and you'll get a lot of bales. And um, then we feed it as straw. We do not feed straw to the lactating cows, but we feed the straw everywhere else. And uh, like I said, we, we put water with it and reconstitute it and put it with the rileage and put it with the corn silage and it kind of all blends together. And well, they clean up the bunk, but that might be because they're hungry and they don't have anything else. But anyway, it, work, it works okay. And then I, I do straw for bedding. I use a tub grinder to grind the straw, grind the corn stalks and grind the grass hay. All of my waterways I use for grass hay and I'll get uh, two to 300 uh, round bales of grass hay. And I use that in the dry cow, the heifer. Um, I have an Angus cow calf operation. I use that in there. Um, and so I use that grass hay in those rations. And I do put a little bit of grass hay in the lactating cow ration as well. Um, so that works pretty well. And I try to have enough storage uh, that I grind once a month. So I, I grind uh, like 50 bales of corn stalks because I use it for bedding all over. And then I, I grind probably 20 bales of grass hay and about 30 bales of straw. Brian, is there anything you want to add on um, the soil health side of, of cover crops or any additional considerations producers need to take into account as they're looking at cover crops for their operations for the first time? Yeah, to me, one of the great benefits of a cover crop is the soil health aspect of it. And there's two or three you know, really important things to look at there. One, I think for cover crops, the big one for me is just reducing erosion. So, you know, some parts of the state, that's more of a concern than others, but certainly if you've got rolling topography, the erosion control is really a key component of that soil health. And then the second one is water infiltration. So as you keep more living roots in the ground more of the year, that tends to improve your soil aggregation. So little clumps of soil will kind of stick together and create more pore space in the soil. This helps with compaction and also helps get more water to infiltrate into the soil. And that's really where we see the benefits if we can reduce that surface runoff, cut the erosion, get more water to infiltrate. And we're just going to have a better functioning system in general. The soil is going to hold more water as well. The water holding capacity of the soil will increase as you add organic matter. So there's just a lot of benefits to having a cover crop in the rotation for soil health. In addition to all of the other potential benefits with cover crops, you know, you can graze them, you can, you know, put them up for forage as we've been talking about. So certainly, you know, some soil health benefits and also water quality. That's another one we don't often, you know, not always think about when it comes to cover crops, but I'm involved with a lot of research at Iowa State where we're looking at water quality in conjunction with cover crops. And we very regularly see, you know, 30 to 40% reduction in nitrate concentrations in uh, drainage water or, you know, groundwater, you know, with a, just a straight cereal rye cover crop. And so both on the soil health and the water quality side, we see a lot of benefits. And I just had a maybe a conclusion question for John as well. As, as you kind of take a look at your whole operation, I feel like at, in, in your conversation, you, you are utilizing or maximizing 
every inch on your dairy. Was this something learned over time or have you always had that kind of mindset of uh, sustainability, um, maximizing everything to its end or how, how have you evolved on that? Well, it certainly has learned over time, but one of the driving forces is to be able to uh, uh, make, uh, being able to pay the bills. I started, I graduated from the University of Iowa and I started with nothing and, and I was turned down by seven banks to buy my first farm in 1988 for $800 an acre, believe it or not. And uh, the eighth bank gave me a loan and it, it sure felt like in the, the first 10 to 20 years of, of, of being there that I have, I'm on a shoestring all the time. And so that has driven me to be, first of all, to be able to make it economically feasible, but also how do I fit in to what the future is? And, and I, I'm a, a person that is willing to try anything once and I'm willing to see what it does. I mean, I, I remember planting corn after rye in middle June and I was chopping it and it was waist high. Fortunately, it was only on about three acres but boy, you sure learn. And I always say some of my best learning comes from uh, difficulty or failures that you say, well, maybe that wasn't the greatest idea, but uh, maybe I can learn from it and, and, and hone in on the idea. I think the worst thing that you can do is not do anything, not try anything to do what you've been doing in the past and expect a different result. Uh, that just That just doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So I'm, I'm willing to try anything and see where I can go. And I've enjoyed, I'm, I'm a, a lifelong learner and I've enjoyed doing, doing things that would be good for the soil, that would be good for the cows, that would be good for the planet. And so, you know, you, you take this, the statement of, well, this whole sustainability thing or, or this whole, um, I don't know, climate change thing or whatever you want to do, whatever you want to talk about it, and you say, what if they're wrong? Is it still wrong to do good things for your land or good things for the planet? And the answer is no. So it doesn't matter whether they're right or wrong. It's a good thing to have less carbon emissions. It's a good thing to uh, do good things for your soil. It's a good thing to try to um, be more efficient in your dairy. And all of the sustainability piece really revolves around that box of thinking or that way of thinking because that is that is what the future holds for us like it or not the train is leaving the station and you can choose to get on the train or you can wait for the next one because there will be more that will come along the line but nevertheless the train is leaving the station on sustainability on more profitability on more better for your land on better water quality those trains are leaving the station and whatever you can do would be beneficial. And that is exactly the, the train I'm on. And I take it one step further in the tourism piece of it. And I want to teach it. I want to tell the people consuming the food what we're doing. Because after all, the consumer buy is usually comes from the pit of the stomach because they like it. The other thing that is, is because it's cheap. Those are the two consumer buys along the way. So if we can be part of that and educate those folks, that's great. The other piece of the tourism for me is to 
um, have farmers from around the world, United States too, but around the world, and being able to teach them or uh, relate to them as to what I've done and what works and what doesn't. That way, if we're doing the toe step and waltz, maybe they won't step on their toe quite so often. And so that that is part of of what drives me, what makes me uh, really uh, move forward with it, and how I get to where I am is because my my knowledge is wanting to uh, be gained, and I want to learn more about it getting better. And and you do that by being involved in and listening and and seeing what happens and being observant when you go down the road and what other farmers are doing and you know however however that comes about. So. There's lots of challenges every single day, and I enjoy uh, that piece. And I can tell you that um, I've picked a, an occupation that I really love, and that helps too. That I, I no day do I get up and I feel like, oh, I got to go to work today. Every day I get up and say, hey, what can I do, and what challenges do I have to make uh, to make my my business, my life, my day better. Great words of advice. I appreciate it, John. Thank you. Well, John, I think you did a great job summarizing kind of our discussion and podcast. So I don't even feel like I need to do a summary. So good job there. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate all that you do for spreading the good word out there uh, to everybody. That the only way the only way this happens is for people like you to be able to um, communicate with the folks to. Uh, make it all happen. So thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for working with us. It's great to have producers like you that are, that make our job fun too. So we appreciate it. Thanks to Brian and Joan and John Maxwell and Jen Bentley for joining us on another episode of the I-29 Moo University Dairy Podcast. I-29 MooU is an equal opportunity provider for the full non-discrimination statement or accommodation inquiries go to extension.iastate.edu forward slash diversity forward slash ext.